If you're not reaching your financial potential, you're going it alone as a solopreneur, or you're lacking fulfillment and meaning in your life, then this podcast is for you. In each and every episode, Rock helps you create breakthroughs and results so you can live life on your terms. So get ready to unleash more money, time, and magic in your life. Here's your host, Rock Thomas. Before we get started today, I wanted to remind you that if you want more out of life, there is another way. What if there was a way you didn't know about? Whether you're lacking momentum in your business, getting the same results, you're in, you're out, you don't have a supportive environment, people aren't encouraging you to live your dream, or you're tired of not living into your gifts, you're doing something that's unfulfilling, but you want a life that excites you, I know I can help. All you have to do is get on a call with somebody from my team that's going to help you understand the strategies and tactics of success. Go to rockthomas.com forward slash VIP call, and we're going to help you rock your money and your life. So what are you waiting for? Go ahead, rockthomas.com forward slash VIP call, and let's get started today. Welcome to another episode of Rock Your Money, Rock Your Life. And I am absolutely thrilled and excited for my guest. I got to know her through her husband, Vishen Lakiani. Christina Mann Lakiani, and she's an entrepreneur, an international speaker, and an artist. She's also the co-founder of Mind Valley. If you haven't heard of Mind Valley, I don't know what rock you've been hiding under. Certainly not my rock. Um, I've been to a bunch of their events. They are a very, very sexy online um, personal development community, and they have hundreds of thousands of followers. It's very, very um, cool. They feature other authors. I'm actually featured on some of their stuff as well. But Christina is the, um, the co-founder, and she is also a very um, eclectic uh, personality. She let me give you a bit of her background here. So she started her career in government office in her native Estonia and by mid twenties achieved a level of success, mostly known to male politicians at the end of their careers. Wow! It was shortly after Christina and her husband Vision founded Mind Valley, from a small meditation business operating out of the couple's apartment in New York. The, the company quickly grew into a global education organization, offering top training for peak human performance to hundreds of thousands of students all around the world. Christina believes that life is too important to be taken seriously and makes sure to bring fun into every one of her roles as a teacher, mother, entrepreneur, philanthropist, world traveler. Christina helps her students to virtually hack happiness by taking them through her unique framework. Christina advocates that everyone is 100% responsible for their own happiness and is entirely in charge of their own life. Whether it's singing to her two children to sleep, playing the harp, going on a solo trip to the Amazon jungle to recharge, or joining groups of entrepreneurs such as Maverick 1000 on Richard Branson's Necker Island, Christina is set to take on every moment and invites us to do the same. Her honesty and authenticity are breathtaking in a genuinely educational conversation on dealing with emotions and searching for the true meaning of happiness. So <clears throat> let's jump into my conversation with her. It goes on a little bit longer than normal because anytime you can get uh, somebody with ex this experience in personal development, uh, somebody who has done a ton with, um, you know, international, literally met tens of thousands of people 
all searching for the same thing, how to live your best life. I think it's a fascinating conversation. conversation. Yeah. Welcome to the podcast, Christina. Thank you so much for having me. Yes, I, I hope it's going to be fun and warm. Well, we'll see. It'll be what it will be, and I'm sure it'll be uh, delightful. So you're currently up in Estonia. We were just talking offline. You have moved back there after 20 years abroad. Tell me a little bit about what that's like. Uh, it's. I think it's always an interesting experience because um, we change in time. Not just the places change, but we change. And uh, just for the context, I wanted to live in Europe. I actually left Europe because we got married with Vishen and I followed him. And it was a little bit of a sacrifice in some on some level, not like a, in, a, in a bad connotation, but in, on some level it was a sacrifice. So I actually missed uh, Europe a lot. And when I lived in Asia, 17 years I lived in Asia, uh, I created a little oasis, a little European bubble, um, which I called home. So it was interesting because when we finally decided to move back to Estonia and um, it was a long journey, you know, uprooting your whole family, children, school, everything, um, and moving it to Estonia, uh, I, I remember remember, I think the most vividly, the moment when I was on the plane landing in Estonia, finally, after 20 years of, <laughs> of being on the road, uh, I was looking at, at the ground approaching and feeling, oh my God, what am I doing? Can it please happen slower? <laughs> because it's, uh, it's a romantic idea to go back to when you were younger and happier and maybe carefree, but reality is different. We, uh, after, after you have known something, you can't unknow it. So when you change, when you go back to your old environment, uh, it's not the same anymore. It is not the same anyway, because things develop, but, um, but, but that, that idea that you could go back to, to your past, uh, it just doesn't work. Yeah, that's, I, I'm very curious on how you said that. Is, so 20 years, you live mostly in Malaysia, although because of the work you guys do, you travel immensely around the world, right? But it was mostly in Malaysia? Yes, I lived in Malaysia in a big Indian family part of it. I actually felt rather Indian. <laughs> okay. And so you are, are you 100% Estonian? Uh, who's 100% anything? <laughs> my dad is Estonian. He is from Estonia. My mom is uh, Polish from Belarus. And because I was born in Soviet Union, it was a huge melting pot. Uh, and I am a big mix. I've always had issues with identity. Okay. Now, <clears throat> coming from, can we call it the Eastern, Eastern Europe, Eastern Bloc? You can, but uh, not 100%. I was born in Soviet Union. I grew up until 14. I was uh, in that environment and understand Soviet mentality a lot. But Estonia is very different from, um, from the rest of the countries, fortunately. Uh, we had a different history with uh, with Soviet Union and the different history past it. So uh, I think in terms of our culture, we're much more uh, close to Nordic Scandinavian type of culture, not Scandinavian. We're not Scandinavian. We're actually very closely related to Finnish culture. Okay, very nice. And so where did you learn your English? I learned it after school. I learned it with Jane Austen. So when, when I forget, I may use uh, a little archaic words. Jean Austen, Jean Austen. Um, <laughs> do I know that name? Is that somebody I'm supposed to know? Uh, she is uh, probably one of the most celebrated classical writers uh, from Great Britain, uh, was writing in the beginning of the 19th century. Oh, I like fiction. Okay. <laughs> I get it. okay, okay, okay. All right. What did she write? Jane Eyre and things like that? Jane Eyre is uh, also one of my favorites, but her most famous is Pride and Prejudice. 
Got it. Okay. So, number, so funny. I, I recognized the name, but I didn't place it. I'm like, okay, is that like a, a linguist or something? But I got it. All right. You got it's completely me. out of context. I know people always yeah. get surprised when I tell them that these are my biggest teachers. Yes, I, I got it now. So um, a lot of Eastern Europe, Europe um, I've, I've, you know, talked, worked with, had people in my companies, etc. cetera. Uh, there's a generally a great work ethic that comes from that, that culture, hard, um, but also a little bit can be for us Westerners, and I'm Canadian, can be a little bit abrasive in their communication style. You do not strike me to have um, that at all. Um, so where does that, is that because of the Nordic effect? Because obviously Sweden and Norway and those people tend to be a little bit more gentle. Uh, I think we're all quite quite straightforward. Maybe we haven't talked enough. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Well, but but another answer to that would be, I think I'm a, a civil person. <laughs> okay. All right. So tell me a little bit about, for those people that don't know, um, you have been running an organization with your husband for 20, is it 20 years now or close to? It is close to, yeah. We've passed 18 years now, yes. Yeah. And it's an amazing organization. It's in incredibly eclectic. Uh, for those of you that don't know, Mind Valley, uh, I came across it about five or six years ago. And I thought, how do you get so many beautiful people together and still, um, you know, survive uh, all those <laughs> pictures and, and so beautiful people, uh, the personal development field with a lot of what I would call um, an artist's flavor. There's a lot of um, beauty that's brought into uh, the colors and and the online platforms. Very majestic, um, beautiful world. I really enjoyed the times and the events I've gone to. So tell me a little bit about how that came about. I know that the very first thing was Fish's story about selling, um, you know, meditation. But tell me a little bit about the the, the journey, if you would. Uh, sure. I I want to clarify. You're talking about beauty aesthetically right now, or more in a in a way like beautiful, as in something good and and and. I would and say I would say all of the above, really. When I think of Mind Valley, I think of the colors are beautiful, mm -hmm. um, the way things are set up. They're they're in symmetry. You know, you guys talk about having no borders anywhere. And that would create such a difference in the world. And then, of course, there's the the clothing and the decor and, um, you know, the graphics. All of it, to me, mm -hmm. is done very tastefully and very elegantly and very beautifully. I would like to say that my former husband, Vision, has a good taste, obviously, but I'm not going to be this obnoxious. <laughs> but okay. it is the, the, life, the love for beauty does come from him. And just to clarify, I was with MindBody from the start, but I was never uh, properly running it. I, I did uh, do a little bit more of a hands-on work uh, in the very beginning and occasionally here and there. Uh, it was uh, in 2009 when I started a Russian branch of MindBody, so I was in a slightly parallel universe to the English Mind Valley. I just recently came back to the English Mind Valley, but in a different role as an author and a speaker. So, uh, when it comes to the formation and the evolution of Mind Valley, I would say that it is definitely uh, Vision's child. So, if our physical children, I'm the mama, and <laughs> I think I, I pride myself to be the most important parent. Then, when it comes to to Mind Valley, then Vision is the mama, uh, and I'm the 
co-parent. Uh, but right. uh, it it came probably from like like everything in our life. It came from the experience. So uh, the values of mind value are definitely something which uh, which. Um, resonates with Vishen's values, Vishen's personal values. Uh, what happens is that uh, he does set the tone. He started the company, he started the culture, he put into it what was important for him. But also when we were attracting people or uh, working with people, because we've had thousands of people go through companies, some of them stay, others go. Uh, those who stay and those who actually influence the company, they're the ones who uh, relate to the values, who uh, with whom we have a match in a certain way. So while Vision was the initial um, fuse for, for the culture and for, for the philosophy of Mind Valley, uh, it is formed uh, not just by the people who work for it, but actually by our community. So it was um, it was quite a few years into in to our work uh, when we realized that uh, Mindvalley is not about us as business owners. It's actually a mission and a, um, a living thing on its own. And uh, even if we were to disappear off the face of the uh, world, and by we, I mean Vision and, and, the, uh, and me and the, the main people in the company, it will go on. Uh, and I think it's an interesting philosophical concept because often we, we look at history uh, and, and we notice the people uh, the leaders, the, the historical figures, and we think they had created something, but there is a philosophical idea that actually the time creates the leader, the time creates the, the historical figure, and if it wasn't for that historical figure, it would be someone else. So I think Mind Valley, it just happened so that we started at the time when society needed something like that. So yes, Vision happens to be the fuse to inspire, to spark the, the movement, to spark the, the, the mission, but even if uh, even if we were not there, it would go on. So that's a slightly rambling. Hopefully, I answered your question to some degree. No, it was perfect. So tell me a little bit about your personal mission. You you talk a lot about the importance of happiness, and that maybe a lot of people have a different target in their mind, and that no matter what's going on, um, you can still bring happiness to any situation. So tell me a little bit about your perspective on that. Uh, it, it's an interesting thing. It does seem that happiness is uh, currently my mission, or not the happiness. Let's say uh, making happiness accessible is something which uh, which I am focused on right now. Um, however, it's a stage, it's a phase, and I think um, our mission is never something set. We, as we go through life, it adjusts a little bit. So uh, I started uh, as, a, as an author and a speaker, I started from a happiness topic because it was simple, it was understandable. Uh, people asked me to speak about that, but the more I, start, the more I was speaking about that, or the more I was researching it, uh, the more I started shifting to a slightly different mission. So currently, I think my most important task is to uh, help people to uh, get to know themselves and to, get, uh, to sort out their most important relationship. I would like to quote uh, Oscar Wilde, he says, um, you know, uh, love for yourself is the beginning of lifelong romance. And Oscar Wilde, of course, is known for, for, for very funny quotes, but it is true. So my mission currently is to help people to sort out the most important relationship, which is the relationship with them, and then everything else will fall into place. But ultimately, I think I do that because I think that um, everybody wants to be happy. And it's a funny, you know, this happiness is such a funny topic because on one side, 
And I'm not going to ask you what you want for yourself, because if you, if we are a little more critical about ourselves, we set ourselves really interesting bars and goals and targets. But if I ask you, what do you want for the people that you love most in life? And I'm talking out to everyone. If you think of the person you love the most, whether it's your child, your spouse, your partner, your, your, your parent, what do you want for them? Usually, if it is about someone you love, the thing that you will say is for them to be happy especially when it's children. So it is happiness is important. Yet, if you listen at, at the contemporary discourse about happiness, and by contemporary, I mean in the past five years, then the messages that we hear is, oh, it's irrelevant, or, uh, well, that's actually not a new idea, but there is idea that pursuit of happiness is not going to give you happiness. And, uh, and for, there is a, a famous TED talk, don't uh, pursue happiness, pursue meaning. Meaning will give you you know, whatever you need in life. So it's interesting because on one side, it is important and we understand that it is important. But on the other side, we tell ourselves that no, it's not important, it's secondary. It's the prize at the end of the journey. You know, this idea that success will lead you to happiness. If I do the things right, if I live life properly, then at the end of it, I'll be finally happy. Or it's some kind of prize at the end of the journey. So in personal growth, it's, it's really bizarre. I find it super interesting because in personal growth, we understand that if you want to be rich, you have to work on your money mindset. If you want to build a business, you have to understand entrepreneurship. You have to understand how this works. You have to understand investment. Uh, and I'm not talking about classical investment. I'm talking about investment as investment into what you do. Uh, if you want to be healthy, we understand that we have to study health. We have to invest into our health. If we want good relationships, we get it. Yet when it comes to happiness, we tell ourselves, no, it's irrelevant. It's secondary. It will come. And the funny thing is that, so, so Happiness is not such a fluffy topic as people might think. There is a lot of research about that. So there is quite a, a lot of research um, trying to find the correlation between success and happiness. And you know what's interesting? I will not surprise anyone if I tell you that success will not make you happy. That's why we have books like The Monk Who Sold His Ferrari and, and this kind of stories, right? But researchers have found that if you are in the state of happiness, you're much more likely to become successful. Yes. So that's, uh, in a nutshell, what I'm right. busy with. <laughs> so, so that makes me think of the be, do, have model. And a lot of people are like, you know, if I have a million dollars, if I have a nice car, if I have a nice house, then I will be happy. And so I think what we're saying is the reverse is so, is that when you set the intention to be a happy or cheerful or grateful uh, person, and you create that resonance, that vibration within yourself, you're much more apt to attract things, be in flow and have things roll off of you when things don't go the way that you expected them to. Is that a little bit what you're talking about? It is uh, it is in that direction, uh, but I do think it's a very uh, deep concept because when it comes to uh, happiness, first of all, we haven't clarified what I mean by happiness and we all have very different ideas of what happiness is. For some people, it's an emotion, for other people, it's something else. I talk about the state of happiness, something a little bit more stable, because emotions are by nature volatile, they change. As you live through emotion, it changes. So if we define happiness as an emotion, joyful emotion, uh, cheerful emotion, uh, we, we, from the start, we are setting ourselves up to uh, failure because it's, it's not stable. You can't achieve that if it's not stable, right? You'll, be, you'll keep chasing it. Uh, I, when I talk about happiness, I, I do believe that it is a much more profound state 
than we give it credit to. If you, for example, look at the theory of the flow, and, and that uh, the state of flow is actually also being researched quite a lot, there's uh, a lot in that state of flow which is very similar to how I define happiness. It's this timelessness, you know, it's this um, when you're so focused on the present task, on the present moment. So happiness, in my opinion, it's not just about vibrations. And I, yes, I know I come from the personal growth industry, but I'm very pragmatic. I was born in Soviet Union. It's actually, I'm talking about it from the very, uh, very pragmatic psychological point of view. Your resourceful state is important. It's, it's interesting. We live in the society that uh, idealizes hustling and uh, being busy. Yet there is Pareto law, which I, I am uh, applying it loosely right now, which says that only 20% of your uh, actions bring 80% of your result. So if you're honest with yourself, you understand that you create much more when you are in a particular resourceful state of mind. Uh, uh, yet, because it's sometimes elusive and we don't understand what it is, or in terms of in, in, in case of happiness, we don't um, we don't prioritize it. What happens is that we keep ourselves busy, because if I can't be in the flow, at least I am busy. At least I'm doing something, and we are uh, messing up the whole situation. I think in my opinion, and uh, if I talk about happiness, it would be a longer conversation. In my opinion, if we define happiness as a certain resourceful state, which is uh, attainable and you can maintain it there, uh, it is a resourceful state because it's positive, uh, you know, it's optimistic enough, it has a pull into the future, but you're also at peace with what you have, uh, then it stops being a fluffy, irrelevant thing. And it becomes really clear that it's not uh, it's not about um, you know it's not about uh, even uh, your energy or it's it's uh, pure psychology. You know, I'll give I'll, I'll give you a very simple example. <laughs> it was a few years ago. I uh, had a chance to talk to Dalai Lama, and at that time I used to work for for NGOs. I was working for UN, UN actually uh, UNHCR, working with refugees. And parallel to that, I was still working on Mind Valley. So Mind Valley, we build company that helps people to live uh, extraordinary, fulfilled, uh, meaningful lives. And on the other hand, I work with refugees in Asia and I see a lot of misery. So I asked Dalai Lama, I said, I do not know how to combine these two contradictory worlds. How can I talk about happiness when I know that there's misery in the world? And he said a very simple thing. He said, Christina, you cannot help anyone if you're not happy. So going back to what you think is important, the state of abundance, you know, if we operate from the place of happy, if we do everything from the place of happy, we do it from the place of abundance. But if we do things to attain happiness, we do it from the place of scarcity. And I've been in, uh, in charity and, and philanthropy for uh, as longer probably than I have been in business. And I know that a lot of charity is done not from the state of happiness. I get why it's happened. We, we are empathetic and we'll feel sorry. But the truth is that you're much more useful to the world when you're in a good state yourself. As Dalai Lama said, you can't help anyone if you're not happy. Yeah, beautiful. Um, <clears throat> so then what about the phrase, you know, being in personal development and being a coach? Um, I would be tempted to ask somebody, what has to happen in order for you to be happy? 
Because if somebody doesn't know, then how can they arrive or look to or help themselves create that, right? So what do you think of that question? Well, it's a great question because that's exactly the problem. We, uh, we ask ourselves, what does have to happen for me to be happy? Mm -hmm. But what does it mean to, for you to be happy? The well, thing maybe is, that's you know, the question that I'll, I'll go first. Uh, yeah, I'll go back to, to uh, so when I studied in university, whichever course we took, macroeconomics or uh, philosophy or whatever, the first thing, the first lesson was, let's define what it is that we are studying. So let's define what is happiness, what is happiness for you. And my personal feeling after studying it for so many years is that happiness is a very personal thing. Success is a universal phenomenon that most society within the context of their society understand similarly. Uh, but happiness is a much more personal thing. So for someone, happiness may be meaningful career and being busy and actually being always in the thick of the things. And it's good if that's their definition of happiness. For someone else, happiness might be uh, being in the state of flow, creating. For someone, it might be uh, being with the people that they love. We all have very different, different definitions of happiness. But the thing is that we, we never even stop to ask what happiness is. It's a unicorn. Everybody knows what's a unicorn, but nobody has seen the unicorn. <laughs> it's a mythical creature that doesn't actually exist. So I would suggest that to start the journey to happiness, you have to define what does it mean for you? And I've already given you one hint. One thing that I suggest is try to define happiness in terms of a state rather than emotion because emotions change throughout the day within one minute you can have such a range of emotions you can have contradictory emotions if you define happiness as emotion you're never going to have it or uh, it, it's not going to be attainable there is a slightly oldish uh, theory from 1950s uh, theory of hedonistic adaptation and that actually is um, defining happiness as a certain state so that kind of adaptation happens in many areas i will talk about the area which is a little bit maybe closer to you. Uh, you know, they, they have this study that says that people who, million, uh, who win million dollar in a lottery, uh, study shows that in two years, they get back to where they were before they won the million dollars. It is because we have a certain set point, unless we work on it, in our financial mindset. And that set point is true about so many areas, about relationships. You find a great guy or a great woman, but you have a certain set point, certain patterns. In, in psychology, it's actually our mental patterns, right? And you get back to what you had and you corrupt beautiful people or maybe make them maybe corrupt people beautiful, whatever you set point is but we get back to a certain set point with happiness it's the same there is a set point no matter what happens in your life you can become super excited but you get back to set point you can be very very un uh, unhappy and you get back to the set point uh, example of that would be people who think uh, who seem to have everything going wrong for them and yet they are optimistic and I'm not talking about cheerful I'm talking about uh, optimist because optimism is slightly more uh, functional uh, state because it's it's the state where you're looking forward you're looking into the future you uh, you are excited about what's coming so first of all if you define happiness as a state it's going to make it much easier for you uh, second um you know 
one more thing that we do is that we idealize happiness and we make it into something perfect. I heard this interesting uh, tale, it's a fairy tale probably, at one of the personal growth events 10,000 years ago, so I don't remember who actually shared it. But it was about a professor and his daughter who was obsessed with the order and she would always come to her dad's uh, room and clear up his table and make it beautiful and then be upset and like, dad, why are you so messy? And dad one day decided to, to please his daughter, so he tidied up his, his table his desk and the daughter comes in and says my god dad you're messy again and he's like why am i messy look i've tidied up the table she's like no 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 but these papers are in the wrong place this pencil is in the wrong place so the thing is that you know if you make happiness a perfect state then obviously it's going to be elusive i love the quote by uh sri kumaral he says you know you're not happy because everything is perfect everything becomes perfect because you are happy so I can give you more, uh, more examples or more ideas how to define your happiness. But one thing, uh, the, the two, uh, we don't have that much time. The two things that I would suggest, make it about the state, not about emotion, and don't make it about perfection. Because you're not happy because things are perfect. No. So thank you for that. That was a lot of um, good information. And uh, I, I want to ask, just to clarify for my sake, what's the difference between emotions and state? How would you define that? Uh, well, uh, your state is a, is a more stable thing because within the state, you can have uh, a whole range of emotions. You, uh, let's take the state of flow, which is more understandable. Uh, you can be in the state of flow when you're sitting at your desk and writing something. Mm. And uh, the, the collection of emotions that you can have while you're writing something might be excitement, curiosity, determination. You can be in the state of flow when you go on stage and the collection of emotions there might be a little bit different. It might be not this kind of excitement. It might be a little bit like, you know, fear. I am afraid of being on stage, even though I've been on stage a lot. It might be focus rather than determination because you're focused on the material that you're uh, going to deliver. So the state is a little bit more stable. The, uh, uh, the spectrum of emotions within a state is much more uh, flexible. So emotions by nature are uh, fluid. And emotions are not set. Uh, I, I can give you, um, I, I don't want to go into like an exercise, but just a mental exercise. You can, uh, you can tap into yourself right now. <laughs> Sorry, I'm using such a funny word, tap into yourself. You can think, how do you feel right now? What is the emotion that you feel right now? And try to give it a very particular name. So you give emotion in a name. If I were to ask you right now, to express what you feel to someone else. As you're expressing that emotion, it might change. And while you're expressing it, you might feel something else. A very simple example is if you're afraid of something or someone, let's say you're going for a meeting, you're afraid. If you were to express to the person you're meeting, you know, I'm actually a little bit nervous. As you're saying that, your nervousness changes and it becomes a different emotion. And that's the beauty about emotions. If you deal with them properly, if you have a healthy relationship with emotions, they never stop, stick. So emotions in a way are like water. If they flow through, they stay clean. If you put a barrier on their path, and they start gathering and you don't deal with them, that's when they start stinking. So that's the difference between states and emotions. If I actually, you know, I've never, nobody has ever asked me that. So I might have to think about it more later. No, I, I, I like the answer. Um, I just wrote down myself, what state am I in? 
in the moment. And I wrote down curious, interested, fascinated, and grateful. Right. As I listen to you speak. So those are emotions that create an overall state of, of what being present, being, um, open, being, being, uh, curious. This is the one that comes most to mind, right? As yeah. I listen to you. As I'm, I'm not trying to listen to you and prepare what to say. I'm trying to be <laughs> present and listen and then respond to the information you're giving me. Does that make sense? Yes, it does. So yes, happiness is about a state, a certain state. And within that state, you can feel such a range of emotions. Mm -hmm. And you know, um, we have a myth. So I was talking about happiness being uh, a unicorn. And I'm sorry that I'm, I'm, I keep on answering the older question, but I just think it's important. Um, you know, when we are children, as I said, uh, the people who love us want us to be happy. So when we are children, our parents want us to be happy. What do they do? They create uh, happiness for us. They create a certain environment for us. My mom didn't take me to hospitals or funerals. In fact, I was attending my aunt's, uh, uncle's funeral just recently, and I brought my kids. They were the only kids in the funeral because apparently in our part of the world, it is not considered uh somehow we think that children shouldn't know that part of life. Right. Uh, so we create this, they create the environment for kids to be happy. And by what, what do parents, parents do? They remove discomfort, pain, fear out of children's environment. I remember my child, my child, my older child, he was once worried about not having done his homework and he was crying at night and I came and asked what was going on. He said, my classmates depend on my homework and I didn't do that and I feel scared and ashamed. And my first reaction as a mother was, hey, let me call the teacher and explain the situation. You were traveling, it was my fault. But then I stopped myself because what am I doing? I'm trying to create a perfect environment for my child not to be uncomfortable. So I stopped myself and I said, you know what, Hayden? It's scary, and I, under, I, I, I think I get it because I'm sometimes scared too. I'm sometimes ashamed. What do you think will happen? So we talked with him, and I told him, uh, how, how I, what do I do when I'm scared? And I told him, no, no matter what happens tomorrow in school, come back, tell me, and I'll, I'll, I'll support you no matter what happens. I'll be there for you. And I, I, I realized that this is the best thing you can do for your child. Just be there, not remove the pain and discomfort, but be there when they are going through pain and discomfort. Why am I telling this? Is because when we grow up, we grow up with a very weird idea that happiness is absence of pain and discomfort. Because that's what our, peop our people, uh, people, our parents tell us. I want you to be happy. Let me solve your problems for you. Don't do that. It's going to hurt you. And I want you to be happy. So our parents for years tell us that being happy means not being afraid, not being in pain, not being in discomfort, not being rejected, being wanted. <laughs> and we grow up believing that happiness is absence of pain, which would have been half the problem. The other half of the problem is that we grow up without knowing how to deal with that because we don't get the skills. Yeah, I think, Christina, you said something earlier that struck me is... Um, and I, um, I'll probably, you know, mess it up, but something along the lines of, you know, your ability to be resourceful is going to lead to your happiness because some children do not grow up with parents that want to make their lives easier, or they're not in a position to make their lives easier. And they were, they were dealt a lot of adversity. And some of those kids can be very, very happy as long as that, you know, they have this resourcefulness, the ability to, 
to deal with their environment, or maybe they don't even know better. There are kids in a third world country playing with a stick and a rock, and they're having the time of their life, right? Because they don't know. Is it possible that part of happiness is when the internal picture we have of what we would like to have happen matches the external? right? I hope it's a sunny day. I hope that my friends arrive at the golf course on time. I hope that I play well and I go out and all these things start to happen. And I feel like I'm happy. I'm happy. Things are going the way I hoped they would. Mm. You think of that concept. For sure. This is actually an age-old concept about happiness that, uh, you, you know, uh, Shefali Sabari is, is one of our authors who says that uh, expectations is what sets you up for unhappiness. And uh, mm -hmm. but, but on the other hand, expectations are natural, right? So I don't want people to now go about and say, oh, I don't want to have any expectations because that's also not natural. And you actually forcing, this, forcing things out of your system is also not natural. But you're absolutely right. The model, if then if I do this, or if this happens, or if this is being given to me, or, uh, you know, if then, of course, yes. it's, uh, it's a recipe for disaster. And you touched upon so many interesting things, because even when you talked about kids in the third world countries, this is a very deep philosophical concept. Like, can we be happy? Can we be unhappy about have, not having something that we don't know uh, how, how it feels to have it, right? So it's it's a very interesting thing, but then uh, it's also slippery slope because that way we might go, we might end up end up deciding that the best way to be is to actually remove yourself from society and be content, uh, you know, with just yourself. But that's that's not why we're on this planet Earth. But the one thing I wanted to comment upon about the most is uh, another myth that you touched upon. It's the myth that what doesn't kill us makes us stronger. So you said there are kids whose parents don't want to give them the perfect environment. But not giving your kids a, per, not a perfect environment or, let's say, not uh, protecting them from, from adversities of life is not a recipe for teaching them how to deal with adversity. Because it's, I've been in personal growth for 18 years and I know one thing for a fact, that your trauma doesn't necessarily make you stronger. It's a crossroad. Whatever, whatever bad happens to you, it might you know, it might not kill you, it might make you stronger, but it might also break you. So there is no guarantee just because you are going through a trauma, it doesn't make, it doesn't, we like to say, oh, it's, it's an opportunity to grow. Yes, it is an opportunity, but it is not a guarantee. What does make, what, what makes it a guarantee? It's the context. It's, uh, it's the tools that you have, the framework mm -hmm. that you have. Mm -hmm. So the, uh, I had this discussion with educators here in Estonia and one guy came on stage and said, you know, I, I think that it's good that schools are tough on kids, that they make them feel bored because that's what you need. But the thing is that uh, if, if you're tough on kids, you can break them unless you give them the right framework to deal with that toughness. And it's super important. Yeah, I, I think it's a very profound statement. And um now, I grew up on a farm and my parents got divorced. And when I moved out, you know, I was a troublesome young boy with a single mom. And so I was sent out to live with my dad on a farm. And my dad was going to discipline me and he was going to teach me, you know, to be a man. And so at eight and a half years old, he had remarried a woman that ran a farm, even though we grew up in the city. My job was to feed 22 horses. Um, day or not, like not day or night, I should say 365 days of the year. That was my job, uh, snow, uh, sleet, whatever my birthday, whether I felt sick or not. 
And so I learned to become very resourceful. I'm, I'm uh, like, as an athlete or as a warrior or as somebody that, you know, you want me on your team because I've been faced with so much adversity that, you know, walking around with a broken arm for two weeks, to me, my level of pain, um, I'm very familiar with it. And Christina, as I've done personal development, I've become very acutely aware and I'm fascinated to have your perspective on it is this notion of our comfort zone. A lot of people would say, well, that's not in my comfort zone or I'm not a swimmer, so I don't swim. What I found is that we tend to recreate what we are familiar with. Mm. And so I became very familiar with growing up on a farm, youngest of seven kids, adverse situations, not getting enough, uh, being left to last, told X, Y, Z, bullied, et cetera. So as I went out into the world initially, I took on the worst jobs, cleaning septic tanks, uh, driving taxis, because my identity was familiar with mm. the, the worst situations. I, I felt like that's where I belonged. Because mm -hmm. I'd experienced it. So I learned through personal development to grow out of that and then to become, to change my set point for my financial blueprint, et cetera, and in my own, uh, what I deserved, et cetera. But I've got all the tools, right? 20 mm -hmm. years with Tony Robbins and Mind Valley, whatever, and breath work and uh, meditation and all those pieces that allowed me to go, okay, I was that, but it doesn't mean that I am that for the rest of my life. So what is your thoughts around this, this whole narrative around what we're familiar with? The abused woman, right? She's mm -hmm. abused as a child. Her father's an alcoholic. And then she gets into a marriage and she's abused again because she's familiar with it. I say to people, she's not comfortable with it. She doesn't like it. But her system was so wired and programmed that it, it, it kind of looks for it. What are your thoughts on that? Well, we definitely go back, uh, fall back into our patterns, and it might sound a little bit strange, but maybe, you know, maybe the, those tough jobs were exactly your comfort zone. It might seem like discomfort for someone else, but for you or for that woman that you just brought as an example, yeah, it might sound strange, but people may be comfortable with abusive relationships because they are familiar. They know how to interpret them. They may be comfortable with being, um, you know, less than healthy. You know, uh, and uh, I'm not. Uh, I'm not one of the people who will say like, you know, if you're born with with a, a chronic disease, that's your karma, or whatever. Not at all. Uh, as I said before, not everything that happens is for the better. Uh, but. Um, I, I do believe that we are in a very strange way comfortable with what we uh, have experienced previously. Uh, and that's the way our brain works. The neural pathways are, are there. And it's not about physical discomfort. It's interesting because we, in, in current society, we think that uh, uh, stretching your comfort zone is jumping out of the plane, you know, skydiving. But for some people, that's joy. And there's nothing uncomfortable about that. Right. For some people, you know, for some people opening up in front of a stranger and being uh, being honest about how they feel is uncomfortable. For others people, it's, for other people, it's so comfortable. <laughs> and yeah. for them, what might be uncomfortable is actually lightening up. 
you know right. stop stop being so uh, so <laughs> dramatic <laughs> laugh a little dramatic. Laugh some, yeah. no i'm i'm, I'm just yeah. bringing as an example that for someone being uh, open about your pain is uncomfortable for someone actually being cheerful is uncomfortable it's it's about what we are used to and what our brain is used to because that's that's how our brain it's it's like a track on the snow if the track is there it's easiest to go down the track and no matter what the track is is it uphill or downhill getting off the track is hard so breaking this pattern is hard and and it doesn't matter in which direction for a woman who is used to abusive relationship being with a guy who is perfect might be hard because she might be not sleeping at night wondering what the hell is wrong with this dude uh so that's that's what i think about comfort zone but the other question is how much do we have to push our comfort zone you know this is another interesting thing because sometimes uh you can um you know there are no recipes in life. So in general, to grow, yes, you have to get outside your comfort. And I really love Harvecker's uh, quote that uh, your, uh, you know, your, your your area of your success is uh, proportional to your area of your area of, uh, of your comfort zone. So the more the, the wider your comfort zone, the more successful you are. Yes generally speaking yes but then if you look uh, at uh, people doing crazy things just to get the kick so to get out of comfort zone is it necessary or not so here's another philosophical question how far do you have to push it um i was just researching vulnerability and there is new uh, while society contemporary society uh, applauds vulnerability there is new voice being heard that you know oversharing is also bad so everything is good in the right place at the right time and in the right quantity. So I told, I'm all for uh, getting out of your comfort zone, but you have to do it with a purpose in mind. If it actually serves you and not, and you don't do it just for the sake of doing it. It's, it's about anything you do in personal growth, do it with a purpose in mind and do it for, for, for the transformation, not for the process. Yeah. So can we agree then perhaps on the fact that having a safe place to land, having somebody, like you said, when you went to your child and you said, Hey, you know what? You go to school, you're afraid. It's okay. You come home, we'll work it out. We'll figure it out. I really believe that there might be elements to happiness. One of the elements is to feel that somebody has your back, right? That somebody is going to at least be there to listen to the difficulty that you went through. I'm a, I work with a lot of men's groups and in our men's group, we talk a lot about the fact that men need a place to win. The masculine needs a place to win. And in the absence of a place to win, most masculine will isolate. They will hide. They will go to their computer. They will go to the gym. They will play video games. They will go to a place where they can try to figure things out on their own so they can come back and win again because so much of their self-esteem is attached to their ability to produce or to contribute to an at, being an athlete on a team. If you continually make mistakes and cost your team the victory, then you feel like you don't belong. So how much is belonging in a safe place feel that you matter and ingredients for happiness? Uh, you know, I, one of my earlier talks was um, 
I think it was six steps to happiness at that time, but now it's seven. And I was incredibly reluctant to add this uh, last ingredient because I come from personal growth and the rule number one in personal growth is that everything is in your hands. And we all know that happiness is in your hands, right? It doesn't depend on anyone. So I was incredibly reluctant. Whichever area you take is like, you know, first you and then then the rest of the world. But there was this super long research. It's probably the longest uh, research in the history of humankind. It started in the beginning of 20th century by Harvard's researchers, there have been, I think, three directors of this research by now. They were following lives of, I think, about uh, uh, like 100, maybe a few hundred men uh, from US, I think New York area, and they were following their lives for 75 years and trying to uh, find what makes uh, people happy or unhappy. So they, th that was actually a happiness research. And uh, the interesting thing that they decide, uh, discovered that the only thing that has a the direct correlation with your level of happiness is strength of your connections in life. So men who had strong, meaningful connections in their life were happier. And that was the only correlation between whatever uh, the components of your life are and you actually uh, uh, you know, expression or, or, or feeling of happiness. So after, after uh, being uh, reluctant, I had to make peace with science <laughs> and admit that science is right and I'm wrong <laughs> and add this, this uh, one step to my training on happiness. And that step is create meaningful, strong connections in your life. It's going to make you happy, not just happy, but also healthy. Nowadays, the research has gone further and we've discovered that number one killer in the contemporary society, I'm talking about Western rich society, I'm not talking about uh, emerging countries, uh, is uh, is loneliness loneliness epidemic because your chances of surviving any disease if you have strong meaningful connections are so much stronger your chances to be happy are so much stronger your chances to create a successful business when you have uh, meaningful support systems are so much higher so yes i'm all for that so that would bring to maybe your next seven steps is how to create meaningful relationships right Oh, relationships is the one area I don't go to very deeply usually. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's interesting because so I have different, you know, tribes, groups, whatever, my golfing buddies. And there are some people that are really good at creating meaningful relationships. Like this one guy I golf with, he doesn't care where his ball goes. Absolutely doesn't. He spends his whole time talking to everybody. Then he just steps up, hits it, doesn't even look where it goes. And people are like, are you going to hit another one that went in the woods? He goes, no, I'll just drop one down by you. Gets in the cart and he starts talking to the person he's with. He's all about the relationships. Hmm. That's his purpose. Golf is getting in the way of him <laughs> speaking and connecting. And so then there's other people. They don't want to talk to anybody. They're all about the score and and. I ran this pattern for many years uh, playing golf is I thought I would be more likable if I was a great golfer, because if I was a great golfer, I ran a program called people would want to be around a great golfer. <laughs> and I only learned later is that as I became a great golfer, I was a little uptight and serious and I had rules around things that people couldn't talk while I was about to hit and things like that. And I would end the day and everybody would be like, oh, rocks a dick. He's a good golfer, but he's not a lot of fun. And he makes me feel bad because I don't play as well as him. And it totally ruined my whole strategy. Mm. <laughs> so can you imagine like, like sometimes we're, Tony says we're running east looking for a sunset. 
I was just trying to create a way to be more likable. And mm. in, the, in the result, I ended up, the strategy didn't end up working because I didn't really truly connect in meaningful ways with people. I was trying to use a result, an achievement as a calling card for people to want to be with me. And so later on, I learned to lighten up. I uh, really love uh, another quote by Oscar Wilde. He, he's a source of greatest quotes. He says, life is too important to be taken seriously. And I think it's a very, very deep idea. So uh, lighten up is definitely a really good suggestion for a lot of people. But then when it comes to your particular situation, I think in your case, the motivation to become a good golfer was just a little bit off, uh, as in you wanted to be a good golfer to be liked by people. So they're a little bit, it's, it's kind of funny. Uh, but uh, on the other hand, I don't think there is anything wrong with someone who is so passionate and it is about golf for him and he might be uh, unpleasant to, to be around because we don't know people. Uh, you know, I, I admire people who are super likable and they have a lot of uh, friends and they connect easily but I know that you don't need to be that you can be yourself and there are people who are reserved who are shy uh, who are maybe introverted and they still can create meaningful connection it's just that for them meaningful connection may, might mean with three people and not with 30 people so I, I don't see anything wrong in whatever your motivation is uh, in whatever you're doing and you can connect wherever you choose you can choose to connect on the golf field or you can choose to connect in the office or you can choose to connect at home I connect with my children they are like a huge source of joy for me but not just children actually <laughs> i'm not so <laughs> i'm not so bad I, i have social life too but uh the thing is that um you know i think my my message to the world is that whatever <laughs> whatever is your kick is cool as long as you're honest with yourself why are you doing certain things And if, if why you're doing it is actually taking you to your goal, then great, keep doing that. Uh, and, and, and it's, it's, it's cool. I'm not the one to tell people how they are going to be happy. They're the ones who have to decide for themselves what is going to make you happy. And if what makes you happy is curling at home with your cup of tea and a good book, and you are not into socializing, then beautiful. As, as long as you are at peace with yourself and where you are at this particular moment know thyself. So um, Johnny and Missy Butcher have, um, have a, a, maybe a bit of a different way of looking at life and pursuing life. Um, there are many different ways that you can experience this world that may not be the same values of somebody else. Um, I, I took their course, Life Book, I think it's called, and I've been present to some of their talks about, um, you know, their their type of relationship that they have and, and, and the way they experience the world. What are your thoughts on um, how do people, because, you know, I'm, I, my parents are Dutch um, with a strong German influence. So I grew up in a very serious environment growing up in the war and all of that. So yeah. it was not nor it was not natural for me to be lighthearted. I learned over time to become a little bit more playful, a little bit more open. So again, back to our programming, we're exposed to something. Um, it's a long question, but what do you think of, you know, we live longer today. What are your thoughts around monogamy? And, and are we meant to be in a relationship for 70 years with, the <laughs> with all the changes that happen? Do you want to give that a kick of the can? You are talking to a person who divorced recently <laughs> and okay, divorced from well. a very successful human being. We're actually still friends with Vision, uh, like close friends. Well, <clears throat> you know, it's, um, 
It's a curious question. And as I said, I don't normally talk about relationships because I don't consider myself an expert. Uh, I have a lot of questions around that area. And if I don't feel that I know the truth for myself, I wouldn't share it. Also, I'm a private person by, by nature. It might, like those who have seen my speeches, they will maybe be surprised because sometimes I do share very, very personal things, but I am private. Uh, so uh, it's, it's a not the topic that I talk about often. But I've been thinking about that as well, because um, uh, humanity doesn't have uh, a scenario for that right now. The thing is that uh, when it comes to any area of life, uh, your mission, your mission can be anything, literally. We uh, admit that people uh, are here on earth with different missions. Uh, if it's health, Look how many different diets there are. Uh, look how many different exercise routines there are. There are different forms of earning money. You can be an investor, you can be an entrepreneur, you can be freelancer, you can be uh, making a career in corporate world. There are a plenty, uh, a multitude of recipes to choose from in every area of life. When it comes to relationships, unfortunately, we live in dark ages. We only know one scenario. And we force that people go by that one scenario. Boy meets girls, and right now I'm being a little bit contradictory because actually it is boy meets girls, a girl meets a girl in most of the world. They fall in love, they get married, they create a family and they live happily ever after. That's the only scenario which is accessible to contemporary human being. If you look, look at movies, the only area where we started loosening up is that it doesn't have to be boy meets girl. It can be actually a same sex. Uh, but that's the only area where we have loosened up a little bit. But if you look at our uh, cultural uh, well, what we have in our culture, whether it's movies, whether it's, it's uh, books, uh, European culture is a little bit different, but if you take American uh, movies, if there is any hint of a love triangle in the movie, you look from now on, I'll guarantee you what happens is one of the two contestants is going to turn out to be a bad person. We cannot deal with the idea that uh, there may be a love triangle and it's not black and white, that somebody is, an, is a jerk and uh, another one is an angel. We can't deal with that. We don't even have scenarios of that. Uh, very, very few. Our, our idea of love and romance is so simple, yet it is not... Um, it, the, the sad thing is that we don't give uh, that we don't get, we don't give a choice for people. You don't have, you don't know what to do if you feel something else, right? Uh, that's one thing. Uh, the other thing is that uh, monogamy is one of the hardest forms of relationship, and I'm uh, saying that based on uh, other speakers, not myself. Uh, I think it's uh, Esther Perel who is the uh, huge. Um, authority in that area who says that the monogamy is the hardest form of relationship also with misunderstand monogamy biologically speaking monogamy means being with one partner from the beginning to the end and there are no other partners it's the classical old-fashioned story where a virgin marries and, and and you know she only has one partner for the rest of her life uh, we are actually not in monogamy we are in uh, monoamorous relationships as we change partners through life like we have one partner we exclude with one partner and then we might move to another partner. This is the most common form of relationship in contemporary world. We just call it monogamy, but it's not so. Because changing partners is something new. In the old days, 100 years ago, that wasn't an option. You couldn't be a data guy and decide, am I going to marry you or not? And then decide, no, I don't want to marry you and find another guy. You would be considered a, a lost woman. 
with men it's a little different story so i think that polygamy is one of or polyamorous relationships or whatever there are so many different names it's one more of uh let's say if, if relationships was a buffet dinner, it would be one more of the courses which you could try or which you could go for. Uh, I don't think it would be for me because I am a very um, one-track person and very loyal person. I would have issues with uh, with feeling jealousy in any kind of uh, form of open relationships, although I do not know. Another thing is that what is marriage, what is love, what is romance? We've still bundled it all up together. Uh, I think it's Catherine Woodward Thomas who talks about how we put into marriage so much something which as a village used to do. We expect uh, financial stability, social stability, parenthood, uh, friendship, uh, emotions. There is so much uh, expectation out of a marriage. Maybe we should look at phenomena separately. You know, what is, uh, what is sex? What is romantic love? What is committed relationship? They, they are all uh, things which we don't even talk about because it's scary, it's emotionally charged. There are a lot of taboos around that. So I don't have the answers. I don't have the answers even for myself. My personal feeling is that I'm a monoamorous person. It doesn't mean that I will not fall out of love and fall in love again. But at the moment when I'm in love, I'm in love with one person. That's my uh, feeling about myself. I do not have an answer, but I also think that there shouldn't be one authority that gives answers to everyone. I think every person has to have the right and freedom to decide for themselves. It's uh, a slightly rambling answer to your very complicated question. <laughs> <laughs> I know, it was a big one I set up. But I, I think it's appropriate one because, you know, the relationship you're in is going to contribute or has the ability to detract from your happiness. If you're with somebody that is going against what you value and you're in resistance and, you know, you like to eat one way, they like to eat another way. They like to get up early. You like to get up late. They want to watch sports. You want to watch movies. Like there's many opportunities if the values aren't aligned for there to be friction. And I'm a big believer that we're all responsible for our own happiness, but the person in my life can contribute to my happiness, but they are not responsible for it. And I experience a lot of people are like, you know, well, she makes me so unhappy. She makes me this, or he makes me that. I'm like, why are you giving your power up to that person? Right. If they repeatedly do it, then it's time maybe to consider a new option. But other than that, I think it's a new form of communication that's required and honoring. And I think that, most people, I don't know if you've ever read the book, Nonviolent Communication. Oh, well, I've, I know about that um, that theory. I, I read very few books, actually. I mean, in non in nonfiction, I read fiction. I love fiction, but uh, and classical literature, in fact. But uh, I know a lot of uh, things from teachers directly. I have the privilege of working in personal growth for right. eighteen years, so that's why I read few books. But I do know about nonviolent communication, yeah. of course. Yeah. Yeah. And I just think so many people are, um, you know, poor communicators or they, they don't understand that their words are provoking and, and attacking, et cetera, versus really dialing in and, and getting to the feeling part and the values part. I think a lot of happiness comes when you're with other people that you share the same values, hmm. same, same, similar forms of communication and similar language patterns. And, um, and when you kind of get those things going, it's a lot easier to be happy or you can just, you know, get a dog. 
<laughs> I, I like the idea of getting a, a dog, although I, I would like to get a little mini pig. I'm so in love with those animals. They're so cute. <clears throat> but you know what I think? I, I think it's... Um, uh, I think that... Uh, and, and now I'm going to contradict to what I said before. Okay. Um, I think the most important relationship you have to fix is the relationship with yourself. And oftentimes when somebody rubs you the wrong way, uh, it's, well, it's, it's a philosophical concept. Nobody can make you feel anything. Whatever the people around you, whatever feelings they elicit in you, it's actually uh, you reflecting off them. And I know it's, it's a slightly complex um, uh, concept, but the thing is that person cannot make you angry, but you can feel anger because person has triggered something in you for you mm -hmm. to feel anger. But it is not about that person, it is about you, because the anger comes from you and the person was just a trigger or just a, uh, just the thing that, that evoked that in you. The very easy example to that is uh, criticism. When people criticize you, you, your reaction to criticism depends very much on how you feel about what is being said. And a very a very simple example would be if I told you that green colored hair doesn't look good on you, you would feel nothing. <laughs> right? That's the thing. We always, we, we sometimes forget that, but usually if something is triggered in us, it's because it speaks to something that we believe about ourselves. And that's why it triggered. So I've, uh, when I learned that concept a few years ago, I've become a little bit weird about that. So every time I have unpleasant feelings about someone, the question that I ask is not what I don't like about that person. The question that I ask myself is, what is it that is being triggered in me by that person? Mm -hmm. What is it in me that makes me feel like that about this person? And uh, here, let's say, if people don't like um, rich people, what it's not about people being rich because there are so many rich people some of them are bad some of them are good but there are people who would generalize and dislike anyone who is rich billionaires or whatever i've read so much bitterness about about amazing human beings it's not about those rich people there are all kinds of rich people it's about you what triggers in you what is being triggered in you by that that, that you have that dislike that you have that belief so if you look at the world from that angle that nobody can do anything to you we think we are under the illusion that the outside world some can somehow um you know uh, form our self-perception but the causality is in the opposite direction our self-perception defines our relationship with the outside world the more you are at peace with yourself the easier it is for you to be at peace with other people having their quirks. If you're okay with yourself being imperfect, it is so much easier for you to be okay with other people being imperfect. So whenever you're triggered by anything, the first question, ask yourself, what is it in you that reacts to that with so much pain? Yeah, beautiful. Thank you. Thank you. Um, you're listening to uh, Christina Mandlakiani, who is delivering some gems to us here on Rock Your Money, Rock Your Life. And um, as we I think had, your dog likes me, right? <laughs> yeah, he's excited. He wants to uh, hang out. Um, so as we head toward the end of this, um, I feel like I need to have you back because I feel like we haven't even really started. But um, what's what's so? 
I, I'm one of the constructs that you can have is that you can not be happy in your present. So you can keep on imagining the future and things that are going to happen, be excited about that. Or you can revisit the past and remember when you, you know, scored the winning touchdown or whatever you did to feel better about the present. Um, but I do want to ask you, as you now are looking through this semi post pandemic, um, what are you looking forward to? What are you excited about in the next five to 10 years? Um, well, I have two really big projects which are completely not related to pandemics, uh, although I can thank pandemic because uh, I moved to Estonia and this project uh, emerged. Uh, one of them is my book that I'm writing. I'm looking forward to, to publishing it, to maybe speaking more. Uh, and another project is I'm restoring my family farmhouse. <laughs> we can uh, track our family history to 17th century from that place. So I'm, I'm planning to build a museum and buy, buy some some animals. <laughs> I'm not going to become completely a farmer. I'll be a farmer entrepreneur. But these are the two things that I'm really looking forward to. And also um, a romantic date. I haven't had that in a long time because I happened to divorce <laughs> at the time of lockdown. So I do I do need not probably one romantic date, quite a, bu quite a bunch. So these are the things I'm looking forward to. <laughs> Is that a decent enough yeah. answer? <laughs> yeah, that's a beautiful answer. Let me follow up on it. Do you have a title for your book yet? Well, I'm working on different titles. I suddenly realized, you know, the book, the working title is Finding My Way Back, but I realized that the title is one of the most important parts of marketing. So I'm probably going to give it a, a different um, different title, more marketing oriented, but the, uh, it's, it's, a, it's a book about how to come to peace with yourself, how to understand yourself, accept yourself and love yourself unconditionally with whatever you find there, because that's the prerequisite to happiness in my opinion. So uh, that's, that's what the book is about. My life is an illustration to that. So I'm very, uh, I'm very pedantic post-Soviet person. There's a lot of research, a lot of uh, reference to, to other authors. There's a lot of my own experience as well. And I use my life as an illustration. Some people, I, I have some better reading uh, readers already going through the first part of it. And they're like, oh, it's an interesting autobiography. It has nothing to do with autobiography. It's not even in a chronological order, but that's, that's what the book is about. Okay, beautiful. When do you plan on it coming out? I'm planning to finish the manuscript in English in uh, the end of September, and then hopefully I'll publish it by the end of uh, the year. I might have to do the student stunt and uh, cancel all my events and everything for the last week of September and finish writing it. Who knows? Yeah, my experience is always takes a little bit longer than you think, but um, <laughs> certainly maybe uh, once it comes out, we'll have it back on the show. Um, Farmhouse. So you're going to restore a farmhouse. Um, is what kind of farmhouse is it? Is it with animals? Is it with uh, vegetables? What is it? So it's a it's a historical uh, Estonian historical farmhouse. It's the way they were built. Uh, before uh, the oldest part of it is uh, 200 years old it's a chimney which was one of like the the first chimneys on the island my dad is from an island from an estonian island so it's a lot of land it's 200 uh, 400 meters of beach it's uh, some ponds and and uh, a river and i want to build a bridge uh, for whatever reason the bridge over the pond is is my highlight but the historical house where my dad uh, grew up uh, and my uh, he, so his grandfathers and 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 
their predecessors lived there since the 17th century. We, we have traced back most of our relatives. Our family name comes from there. So it's a historical house. I'm the only daughter of my, of my dad, and I actually lived abroad for such a long time. So I thought that the best thing I can do for my family and for, for my children uh, is to restore that family house. And I'm going to create a museum there. Uh, and the idea is to actually connect the stories about my family with the history of the island so that it's all actually interesting for the people from outside. Uh, so that's that's a, a hard part of the project. But then everybody in my family wants different animals. So I said, OK, I'll make it into a cattle farm as well. Also, we have two, four, sorry, 400 meters of beach. It used to be two kilometers. So I keep saying two kilometers. So there are 400 meters of beach which needs to be eaten clean. So my uh, highland cows and alpacas and sheep are going to be uh, cute, fluffy lo uh, lawn mowers. <laughs> I love that. That's awesome. Okay. How old are your kids now? Seven and 13. Seven and 13. So maybe you can put them to work a little bit on the farm. <laughs> Absolutely. They, you know, lazy moms have very uh, well um, skilled kids. So my kids do, I, I don't like cooking. They can cook anything they, as long as they have Google. <laughs> well, Christina, it's been an absolute delight with you and uh, your insights on happiness have been very thought provoking today. Um, I normally do 25 minutes. We've done over an hour. So I think we're going to wrap up today's session and um, put it down as a classic uh, I appreciate your energy and I appreciate, um, you know, your mission, which is really, I think, um, I'm going to paraphrase, but is about helping people really, as your book says, you know, become at peace with yourself and contribute to each other's um, happiness and well-being and make the world a better place. So um, your final thoughts for, um, for our audience today. Oh, I'll, I'll just quote Dalai Lama, be happy. <laughs> You can't help anyone if you're not happy. Yeah. Is there a way that people can um, follow you um, and be prepared for your book when it comes out? Well, I'll definitely, like as a co-founder of Mindvalley, I would say follow Mindvalley. Uh, we have a lot of amazing authors there. One of them is, uh, I am there too, from time to time among uh, really great people. Uh, but if you want uh, my thoughts directly, then uh, I, I'm most active on Instagram, Christina Manda. My name is written in a very Estonian way. So that's, uh, that, that's where you can feel in touch with me because I, it's, it's me there, not the team. Okay, beautiful. Well, thank you so much. You have been listening to an episode of Rock Your Money, Rock Your Life. And today we did a little bit of a, um, uh, a hop, skip and a jump direct to happiness, which is really probably the, the thing that people are trying to create anyway, right? Get that money out of the way so that you have more choices and you can do more things that fulfill you and gratify you. So thanks for listening to this session. Of course, if you like this, share with others, subscribe, give us a review. And we'll see you on the next session. Christina, thank you so much for joining us. It was a beautiful session. I enjoyed it a lot. Thank you so much for having me. And thank you, everyone, who was listening. All right. We'll see you on the next episode. So that's it for today's episode of Rock Your Money, Rock Your Life. Head on over to iTunes and subscribe to the show. Then head on over to rockyourmoneyrockyourlife.com and pick up a copy of Rock's free gift so you too can reach your financial potential, enjoy extraordinary success, and live the life you've imagined. Join us on the next episode.